This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello there. This is uh, My name is Sebastian Budgen. I am a member of the editorial board of Historical Materialism. And so welcome to this uh, last session on the penultimate day of our HM Online 2020 conference. Um, the session today is called Politics of the Pandemic, and it's the second panel of two. Um, and uh, we have, well, in principle, we have three speakers today. Uh, Mike Davis, who uh, may be medically indisposed, we're not sure yet, so may be joining us later or may not. Um, if he is, we send our regards and hope he gets well quickly. Um, Andreas Malm, a uh, member of the uh, editorial board also of historical materialism, um, who uh, works at the Department of Human Ecology in Lund University in, um, in Sweden, um, and who is the author of many books uh, that you will probably be familiar with, Fossil Capital, for which he won the Isaac and Tamara, Do um, Isaac and Tamara Deutsche Memorial Prize. Um, and uh, he's just published a new book on the corona crisis uh, and war communism. Uh, he has a second book, uh, interventionist book, also coming out with Verso on uh, how to blow up a pipeline. Um, and uh, is due to publish next spring with the uh, Zetkin Collective, um, a book on uh, ecology and the far right. Um, Andres uh, is uh, currently... Uh, in Sweden, um, and uh, if Mike doesn't join us, uh, we'll be speaking first. Um, and then we have uh, Panayotis Soteris, also a member of the editorial board of Historical Materialism, who um, has just published a piece in our latest issue, um, so issue 28.3, um, called Thinking Beyond the Lockdown on the Possibility of a Democratic Biopolitics. That's a piece that's freely available on the web now. We've made that, uh, brought that out from behind the pay, paywall, so you can read that and circulate it. Um, Panayotis is also, uh, Panayotis is based in Athens, in Greece, um, and is one of the key organizers of the um, Historical Materialism Athens Conference. He's also the author of a recent book that we published in the HM book series called A Philosophy for Communism, Rethinking Altazer which will be coming out uh, with Haymarket Books sometime next year. So um, I think we'll go ahead. And as I say, if, uh, if Mike uh, joins us, then that's great. Um, and uh, the speakers will speak for 20, 25 minutes. And we will take questions uh, in the normal manner uh, via the YouTube channel. So uh, on the YouTube channel, there is a... Um, I think we'll go there ahead. is a uh, option for uh, questions. Turn that volume down. Uh, there is an option for posing questions on the, on the stream, uh, and those questions will be sent to me um, so that you can uh, 
so, and I'll read them out as long as they're not insane. Um, okay, so uh, politics of the pandemic, panel two, uh, Andreas Mal. Thank you, Sebastian. I hope uh, you can all hear me. Uh, I will assume so. I'm uh, at my home in Malmö in southern Sweden. And we have a bridge here, and on the other side of that bridge is a country called Denmark. And uh, the first thing that the Danish state did when the, or one of the first things that the Danish state did when the pandemic broke out uh, in the spring was to send soldiers to board it, uh, to to guard its borders uh, against uh, foreigners uh, coming with the virus, and that was. Um, uh, a, a reaction that um, spoke to quite long-standing Danish anxieties about borders and foreigners. Uh, and uh, the Danish state was very quick uh, uh, on jumping the gun of um, fortifying its borders. Now, something peculiar has happened in, in Denmark in recent months. Until uh, the beginning of this month, Denmark was the world's biggest producer of mink. And it had about 17 million mink on more than 1,000 farms. So that would be more than three times more mink than people in Denmark. And those minks were uh, held in farms to produce fur that is used in fur coats. But also the, the, the fur would apparently go into some false eyelash products. And these products uh, primarily cater to um, very rich consumers. These are essentially luxury products. And uh, those millions of mink are then confined in small, small cages for their entire lives. And these are wild animals that cannot really be domesticated. They need to roam freely and dig and swim in the wild. Uh, so the animals that are, uh, when they are kept in the, this this way, they grow quite distressed. And there, you know, animal rights activists have long complained about the conditions that these mink live in. They, they are said to resort to things like self-mutilation and even cannibalism because they become so, so distressed. And naturally, these conditions also hamper the immune systems of these creatures. They are so tightly crowded together that they regularly come into contact with each other's excrement. And uh, the, the selection for specific genes uh, to, to, to produce identical animals with the best fur uh, means that these animals are virtually genetically identical. So that means that when you have a, a virus coming into these populations, there are no genetic variabilities that can slow down the spread of the virus, what, what epidemiologists refer to as firewalls. These are absent. So if a virus starts to spread through a herd of animals, it can uh, do so extremely quickly and potentially mutate and grow more uh, virulent. And um, in the absence of abundant sunlight and a basic distance between the animals, these processes can uh, happen extremely rapidly. This is, uh, of course, exactly the scenario that, uh, that Comrade Mike Davies, who apparently can't be with us, has described in his prophetic work on uh, these issues. Now, what, what has happened in recent months is that SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, and that we 
um, have been living with this year has jumped into the mink populations in Denmark and uh, spread and mutated and returned to human populations in Denmark uh, with another strain of the virus. So uh, this coronavirus, of course, originally came from wild animals and were then transmitted into humans, spread across the world, then spread into mink populations in Denmark, and then spilled back into uh, human populations in another form. And what makes scientists and, and other freak, uh, others freak out about this is, of course, that efforts to produce a vaccine could be essentially nullified if this new strain takes hold of patients. So it might completely undermine this vaccine. A vaccine that's been produced to to combat the existing coronavirus wouldn't work on this version of it. And in Denmark now, more than one in five farms have reported infections. So the Danish government uh, some weeks back decided that all of these 17 million mink will have to be killed. And uh, now I think they're up to having killed about 3 million uh, mink. And the, the pictures are quite gruesome of, of the mass graves where hundreds of thousands of mink carcasses are you know, dumped into these shafts in the ground. It looks quite brutal. And once again, the Danish state has deployed armed forces, but now to the very farms of Denmark that the, uh, the Danish state has always uh, tried to protect. But now soldiers and police are out there in force to make sure that this culling is implemented. Uh, and there, there is still uh, a debate because uh, liberals in Denmark are opposed to this. And the, the social democratic government has sort of backtracked. It's not entirely clear if the entire population of 17 million will be culled, but it looks likely. And uh, Copenhagen Fur, the world's largest auction house for furs, is now closing down. It's been uh, running for 90 years. And uh, um, this uh, probably means the, the end of this whole line of business. The, the chairman of uh, Copenhagen, Copenhagen First said the other day, it is a de facto permanent closure and liquidation of the fur industry. So we have a scenario where, where we have armed forces sent into the countryside in Denmark to oversee the permanent liquidation of an entire industry, which means uh, in the end that, sorry, rich folks, you can't uh, wear any more uh, fur coats from a mink. And um, it's not only uh, this is not only about Denmark. We have other countries in Europe with mink uh, industries, Spain, Italy, uh, Greece, Poland, um, the Netherlands. The Netherlands has already decided that all fur farming will uh, be terminated by decree, uh, by the end of this year. And here in Sweden, we have about 40 farms and viruses, uh, coronavirus has spread in uh, about a tenth of them. And the left party here is now demanding that the whole industry be shut down permanently, abolished. And there is opposition here too. It's only the left party so far that is promoting this. Everyone else is presumably sticking to the sanctity of private property and um, refusing to accept that this industry is doomed. 
And the industry group for Europe has recently um, come out with a strong statement that um, we have to continue operations. It told the BBC that the market has already reacted to next year's reduced supply with higher pellet prices. So uh, because of reduced supply, prices go up and then there are great profits to be made for those who can, uh, can supply that demand. And this brings home one of the lessons of uh, this pandemic, namely that it is not a Chinese problem. It's This is not um, about some weird, quirky Chinese cultural trait or habit. It's an entirely global problem. It's a structural problem, and it's a problem of capitalism, of the tendency to turn wild nature into commodities that uh, are sold on a market for profit. It's very plain. And uh, uh, what, what, this, what this episode in Denmark really brings out is that if you want to stop this catastrophe from, from cascading and spiraling onwards, you cannot avoid interfering with private property and uh, um, even breaking up existing private property in certain sectors. Uh, one professor of environmental studies said the other day that you, the, the, um, the general rule here is that you should not be allowed to own or keep that many animals in the first place. Now, uh, this is an entire industry that is about to go out of existence, it seems, in Europe. But it's, of course, a small industry. And it's it's really a microcosm of a much much larger macro problem and, and trend here. Mink still only accounts for, uh, for uh, not even 1% of Danish exports. And the, the business in Denmark is about, uh, is, the value of it is about, uh, it's a little more than $2 billion. But the question then is, uh, of course, what happens if we have a zoonotic disease that affects pigs the next time or chicken? Um, and uh, what about the problem of deforestation? Uh, and this year, uh, one would assume that states, uh, I mean, even the, the capitalist states that we've had, that we have would uh, demonstrate some kind of collective rationality and, and ask, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again? Because the effects have been so disastrous, including for, for the capitalist world economy. And if they haven't asked the question, it's, it's quite remarkable. But if they were to, they would very soon come up with the answer that we need to slow down and reverse deforestation. Because deforestation, um, as pointed out by, for instance, Rob Wallace in the, in the previous excellent panel, is the main driver of the rising frequency of emerging infectious diseases uh, because deforestation wreaks havoc with the habitats where you have wild animals such as bats that naturally carry with them pathogens such as coronaviruses. And this year, there has been no slowdown in deforestation. To the contrary, uh, it's it's been accelerated in the tropics. Uh, the Indonesian government uh, just decided to open up Indonesian rainforests to foreign investors to cut down uh, uh, essentially without limit, while at the same time allowing them to exploit the uh, Indonesian labor power also essentially without limit, which uh, triggered the, the outbreak of uh, mass protests in Jakarta and elsewhere in, in Indonesia. In the, uh, in, in, Amazon, in the Amazon, in Central Latin America, you've, uh, you've had another bout of... Uh, 
deforestation this summer in in southern Brazil and in, uh, in um, parts of Bolivia and Argentina, Argentina and um, uh, yeah, de deforestation is just running amok in the tropics. Uh, but at the at the end of the day, if you want that to stop, you would have to apply methods similar to the ones now under, used by by the Danish states to crack down on the mink industry, which is not necessarily sending in armed forces, but at least some sort of hard power from the state um, limiting or even shutting down the most destructive forms of uh, uh, capital accumulation, the ones that, that are responsible for raising forests. And then we haven't even mentioned the fossil fuel industry, which is also uh, running amok and going berserk uh, around the world. And um, um, yeah, just to take one uh, case, the, the French company Total, which is the largest private corporation in, in that country, is preparing to go into the Arctic to drill for more oil with the backing of uh, Macron. And this at the same time as reports have reached us that the methane hydrate deposits that uh, hold an, uh, an absolutely astronomic amount of this greenhouse gas, methane, that is about 80 times more potent than uh, carbon dioxide when it enters the atmosphere, then it's converted into into CO2, but initially for about a decade or so, it's it's more than 80 times more potent. These deposits that are uh, below that that are in the in the sea bottom are now being activated, and the methane hydrate is bubbling and seeping out up through the water column and into the atmosphere. And uh, a company like Total is preparing to go into the Arctic to. Uh, to drill for more oil, to pour more uh, fuel on the fire. And all the large oil companies are still having this uh, expansion uh, planned. Um, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, all of them are planning for expanding production with about 20, 30 percent in some cases. Uh, I think Total is aiming for 8 percent within a decade. The, same, the very same decade when we, uh, according to uh, the consensus of climate scientists, need to cut emissions by something like half. Uh, and it's the same in the coal sector, where you have uh, a majority of, of companies also planning for expanded operations. So the structure of the problem is the same as in the case of the mink industry, but on a, of course, on a much vaster scale, that you have certain, you, you have certain sectors, certain departments of capital accumulation that will ultimately have to be shut down in their entirety if we don't want uh, the catastrophes that we are living in the midst of to uh, continue to some kind of endpoint. And somewhere around here, maybe war communism could be an apt analogy for what we need. Uh, I, as Sebastian said, I, I wrote a little book on this. Um, I did so back in April uh, under lockdown in Berlin. And I wrote that book fairly quickly. Uh, so uh, I don't pretend to in any way have produced uh, a complete work. Uh, I'm rather prepared to, to conduct self-criticism on a number of points. Um, I'll just uh, lay out my, my basic argument about, around war communism briefly here. So the argument is that we're we're living in something that appears to be a chronic emergency, where more and more disasters are thrown um, uh, towards us from 
from nature or or uh, disasters with um, ecological drivers, if you like. And uh, global heating is here perhaps the central one, but but the the uh, uh, the pandemic uh, has uh, has uh, demonstrated that that zoonotic spillover, this this trend of more and more pandemics jumping from wild animals into human populations, is one extremely important facet of the general ecological crisis. Now, why why would war communism be a, a useful analogy here? Well. Uh, the, the the basic idea is precisely that we have a situation where the drivers of catastrophe can only be shut down if the resistance of uh, at least certain fractions of the dominant classes are overcome. And that's a, a situation that is uh, broadly, of course, very broadly analogous to the one uh, that the Bolsheviks faced. Uh, and not only them, but but Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht and others who opposed the outbreak of the First World War, the, the, the one big catastrophe of the early 20th century. That catastrophe, uh, the, the, the ones that, that plunged humanity into that catastrophe were the dominant classes and their state apparatuses in Europe. And these were the, uh, the actors that kept the catastrophe going and maintained it. And uh, uh, the Bolsheviks in uh, in early 1917 correctly argued, or, or soon after the February Revolution, that for this catastrophe to end, for Russia to be taken out of the First World War, the rule of the bourgeoisie has to be toppled. And uh, you know you can have any any kind of objections against. Uh, Leninism and Lenin and the Bolsheviks, but I don't think any serious historian could dispute the fact that what they actually did was to to, to bring down the provisional government and take Russia out of the First World War. And uh, structurally, uh, you know, with, with all uh, all respect to all the differences, structurally the situation is similar in that if we want this chronic emergency to come to an end. Uh, we have to, I mean, obviously there are no provisional governments to topple, but we have to break the resistance of uh, certain, at least at the very minimum, certain fractions, certain elements of the capitalist classes. Most obviously and most challengingly, uh, what's what's known as the fossil fuel industry. That's the first Part of the analogy. Second, uh, the idea of a chronic emergency here uh, is that even if we were to to close all the drivers of catastrophe today, we'd probably have to live with the aftershocks and some already initiated processes that are hard to reverse uh, in uh, in the the months and years after a metaphorical uh, seizure of power, which is exactly the situation that the Bolsheviks again faced. After they had uh, uh, come into power, uh, after Soviet power had been instituted in Russia, um, they had to live with with all the aftershocks of the the, the big catastrophe of the First World War, uh, such as, for instance, the 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 economic the ongoing economic collapse that really began in in 1914, but then was deepened in, in 1917 and the years after. So you had you had a shortage of housing and of fuels, for instance, in the in in, the, in Petrograd and other cities, and uh, these supplies 
had to be alloc- had to be redistributed. What, what supplies existed had to be redistributed from uh, from the rich, from from the bourgeoisie. So you had uh, famous situations of uh, uh, poor uh, poor people, workers, and others in those cities um, confiscating the homes of the rich and using furniture. Uh, from from the palaces and uh, uh, apartments of the rich for fuel uh, in the absence of other uh, sources of fuel and things like that. And again, I think there there is something broadly analogous to what can we, we what we can expect in the next few decades, uh, because even if if we, if we sp- speak about something like defor- deforestation or large scale fossil fuel combustion, if we were to terminate that tomorrow, we would still have to live with uh, a long tail of uh, disasters that are uh, locked into the system, not the least when it comes to sea level rise. And that means that we'll, we will face shortages of uh, certain commodities and uh, we will have to redistribute what supplies exist from the rich to the poor, to put it in very crude terms. And the third point here, and I'm, I'm going to end with that. Uh, is that I think war, the, the idea of war communism as an analogy for our times uh, is, is partly, of course, um, I put it on the table in some kind of contrast to uh, another way of talking about communism that has been fashionable in recent years, namely the idea of fully automated luxury communism, which is based on a, a prediction of uh, extreme supply, that we will have an enormous abundance. We are on the threshold threshold of, of a great abundance of uh, all the goods that we need, be it information or energy or anything else. Uh, I think that is that it's that is a fairly unrealistic uh, prognosis and that we're rather facing situation of serious shortages of key biophysical resources, including uh, ground under our feet, land to stand on. I don't, I don't think it's honest to to tell uh, to tell people in countries like Iraq or Bangladesh that they're on the threshold of a uh, extreme supply when those countries will lose about half of their territory with two meter sea level rise, which is already quite hard to avoid. So that, that means all of Basra, all of southern Iraq underwater and, and very much of Bangladesh as well. So communism needs to be thought in the 21st century. I mean, if we, if we speak about communism in the minimal sense of a society, a society without classes, where everyone has basic needs satisfied, Communism will need to be thought in relation to shortages as much as in relation to abundance, uh, if not more, which is, again, exactly the situation that the Bolsheviks faced uh, after 1917. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Andreas. Um, The title of Andreas's book that you referred to, that's uh, Outreverso, you can buy it from their website, uh, with 40% discount is Corona Climate Chronic Emergency. <clears throat> the subtitle is War Communism in the 21st Century. Okay, um, thanks very much, Andreas. Uh, remind people that they can pose questions in the um, in the chat of the uh, of the YouTube um, video, uh, and they'll be read out uh, when it comes to the discussion period. So, uh, next is uh, Panayotis Soteris. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. <clears throat> okay, uh, well, 
facing the, the inevitable second wave in the pandemic and with lockdown measures imposed in many countries. For example, here in Athens, it is slightly after 9 p.m. and we are in, officially in curfew, which means I cannot leave my apartment uh, in the absence of a dog to walk out, even just to, you know, to go around the, uh, my block. Uh, and I think it is uh, a time necessary to discuss the political uh, and economic strategies associated with such approach against, against the pandemic and whether there is an alternative. I mean, we are all now uh, acquainted with the basic idea behind the lockdown strategy in all its varieties. That is, that it's the only way to reduce overall transmission and consequently transmission to the most vulnerable and susceptible, namely the elderly and those with underlying health conditions that increase the risk of COVID-19 related death by means of breaking down potential transmission chains that could lead to increased infection rates within the most vulnerable and susceptible. Consequently, we all need to self-quarantine, even if we belong to age groups where the risk is relatively small, because this is how we protect the vulnerable. What is rarely mentioned in contemporary debates is that the idea of the lockdown or generalized social distancing measures was not initially based on the assumption that we are dealing with an infection that is more lethal for the elderly and those with underlying health conditions. Rather, back in the 2000s and the emergency plans for a potential killer flu pandemic, or to be more precise, of an avian flu pandemic like H5N5, fully transversing the, series, the species barrier to sustained human-to-human transmission, the main rationale behind social distancing measures was the idea that such a pandemic would mainly attack the young and healthy. In this narrative, a new pathogen to which there would be no prior immunity would emerge, which would more aggressively attack the young and healthy by means of acute immune system responses. Consequently, that was the narrative at that time, targeted measures designed to shield the vulnerable and susceptible could not be applied, and the only solution would be generalized social distancing up to the point of curfews and stay-at-home orders, what we have ended up today to describe as the lockdown. Moreover, it was a period when we saw the emergence of a certain securitization of public health, exemplified in all the militarized connotation of the very notion of biosecurity, and the projection of a logic of preparedness in regards to pandemics, which was mainly coming from the war on terror, exemplified in preparations for a large-scale attack with a biological agent. And it's interesting how centers of disease control were redesigned in that period to cater both for traditional epidemiological surveillance and the possibility of a biological attack. It is also interesting how in those, those debates back in the early 2000s, the history of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic was rewritten. Aspects such as social living conditions of that period and uh, extensive comorbidities were put aside, and all the emphasis was on a pathogen that swam through the young and healthy and where only measures of social distancing would have been effective. However, this idea of a pathogen that attacks indistinctively and even targets more the young and healthy, underestimates the complexity and the social and political dimensions of disease. And moreover, uh, we have to stress that the theor this theorization of the lockdown strategy that began in the late 1990s and early 2000s was an indication of a certain move 
uh, away from more critical social and radical perspectives on public health that uh, incorporated the critiques of scientism and technocracy that were uh, emerged in the 1960s, and they also marked the move towards the hegemony of a neoliberal and commodified version of science and research. Consequently, in such perspectives, it is as if disease is reduced to the emergence of a pathogen and the encounter with it. That's, that's a very simplified version of how infection or disease in general works, disregarding the social conditioning of infection, morbidity, and mortality. In contrast, all the data we now have in regards to COVID-19 mortality and morbidity points exactly towards the constant social production uh, of vulnerability and susceptibility. And we can see the social production of vulnerability with the situation in nursery homes and care facilities hard hit by neoliberal structurings. We can see it in the cases of the excess mortality in persons of color in the U.S. associated with adverse social conditions, precariousness, socioeconomic stress, bad housing and polluted environment and limited or no access to healthcare for millions of them, factors that contribute to particular patterns of underlying health problems that lead to increased mortality. This is also this was the case in France, when, the, when much higher risk of death from COVID-19 was uh, recorded for persons that had not been born in France, namely migrants or of migrant origin. And more generally, most of what we generalize as underlying health conditions associated with increased mortality from COVID-19 are related to social conditions and the detrimental effects of, of inequality, adverse environmental conditions, and socioeconomic stress. Even obesity, the lifestyle parameter mostly associated with increased COVID-19 mortality risk, is well documented to be socially determined in advanced capitalist society. Moreover, at this moment, which is not April, it's not May, we know how lockdowns also failed in the first wave of the pandemic. Because if you look at the macabre lists of countries with the worst rate of deaths per million, you will see countries which, that imposed lockdowns and stay-at-home orders and, and curfews, countries like Belgium, to give an example, or France. And we also know how this, this happens, because in a pandemic where mortality is age-specific and also related to underlying health issues, if you don't have targeted measures in nursing homes and care facilities where large percentage of the deaths occurred, or if you do not take measures to avoid widespread transmissions within hospitals, and if you keep large numbers of middle-aged working-class essential workers with underlying and not taking care of, of uh, health issues at workplaces, often without proper uh, personal protective equipment, then you will have excess mortality. Because in the end, something that happens with the lockdowns is that the persons that more easily could or can stay at home are those less at risk, relatively young, with better living conditions and generally in better health. And also, we know that lockdowns can kill in many other ways. Economic depression, massive loss of income, unemployment in the long run have a great cost in lives, from cardiovascular diseases, from cancer, and of course, 
deaths of despair, drugs, alcohol, and suicide. And in developing countries, the dismantling of the informal sector of the economy creates conditions of social catastrophe. And already FAO uh, uh, is uh, estimating that the COVID-19 pandemic will add millions of people to the ranks of the undernourished. And we already have seen such patterns, how increased precariousness, inequality, and austerity in the 2010s led to reduced life expectancy for poorer social strata in England, or the downturn in life expectancy in the US in the 2010s associated with increased deaths of despair. And moreover, we now have also an image of the cost of lockdowns in regards to mental health and increased family violence. Consequently, you can say that lockdowns cost lives. They point to deaths in the future, deaths for which, unfortunately, there will be no daily bulletins and no voldometer page or John Hopkins dashboard. And moreover, there is an undeniable authoritarian disciplinary element to the lockdown strategy and its normalization of large-scale suspension of basic freedoms, especially since governments already take advantage of this conjuncture to proceed with large-scale interventions uh, in labor law or attempt to facilitate grand-scale capitalist restructuring by any means possible from countries as big as India to countries as small as Greece. We've seen such processes underway in the past months. Uh, so I think all this poses pose a very big challenge for the left, and they pose this challenge for the left at a time of crisis, at a point when you know the contradictions of contemporary capitalism become more evident than ever, from the inability to deal with the pandemic to the inability to send the resources where they are more necessary, to this attempt to take advantage of the situation in order to push with neoliberal reforms. And the challenge is for the left to actually articulate, you know, uh, an alternative, an antagonistic alternative to the dominant discourse and to suggest that it is possible to move beyond the lockdown strategy with all its pitfalls, its class character and its authoritarian traits and insist on the possibility to organize life even within a serious health emergency in a different way. And I would also try to suggest that this is a, a, an opportunity and a challenge and a test for the left to suggest that another form you know, of governmentality, a potential communist governmentality, is possible and could be more successful than the dominant bourgeois one. And I believe that, and, and, and I st I'm stressing the lockdown because I think that the the, in contrast to a narrative where it is the only option uh, available, there is a debate that attempts to see the limits of such a disciplinary and inherently authoritarian approach. There have been proposals that instead of, of insisting on suspending social life have insisted in reorganizing it, keeping education going to avoid the class gaps in terms of knowledge and skills that distant learning entails, avoiding the effects of large-scale disruption of, of production and unemployment, refusing to suspend, you know, 
democratic rights, such as mass, the right to protest, while at the same time making sure that the vulnerable and the susceptible are protected, and there is a public integral health system in place, beginning with primary care. And I think that all these require new solutions, new practices, and new forms of solidarity. How do you reorganize the workplace? How do you make sure that those in frontline economic practices are those with less risk rather than those with more risk, as in certain cases it is the case today? How do you make life for the elderly both safer and more humane from nursery, from nursery homes to multi-generational households? How do you organize schools and universities? How do you continue to demonstrate or even riot? And I believe, and at this point will I will a point to which I will return, that unless you unleash some form of collective ingenuity, ingenuity and democratic process from below, in order to invent new ways, adjust measures to social realities, and dialectically combine different exigencies, you will end up with something close to the fatal logic of, of the lockdown. Uh, and for me, it's exactly the challenge of bringing forward the logic of solidarity as opposed to the logic of coercion. And I'm saying this because in certain instances, lockdowns have been presented uh, as a form of solidarity in the sense of accepting a suspension of our freedoms and other privileges in the name of a broader good. I mean, however, however, you know, this phrase sounds nice, I think that given the knowledge we have of COVID-19 infection, serious disease, and mortality, one could also think of other forms of solidarity. For example, why isn't it also a form of collective solidarity? If we decided that instead of this version of the lockdown, a version of the lockdown where the persons that can stay at home, distance work, enjoy home cooking, belong to age and social groups, of lesser risk, whereas the elderly run high risk in understaffed and under-equipped nursery homes or care facilities, or are dependent upon privatized care-at-home services that run on overworked and precarious staff, and at the same time middle-aged, often in the 60s, working-class persons continue to work at the front lines, being many of them with serious health problems. Instead of this path, which is the path of the lockdown in Europe or other countries, which is another path. One where we could offer better protection of the elderly, including alternative forms of fostering and home assistance, where we could make more sure, make sure that vulnerable and susceptible members of the working class do not work and stay at home with paid leave, where we open up discussions such as lowering instead of constantly raising the retirement age, where and where those frontline work positions are taken over by younger and healthier persons, and yes, where you know, the need for protection and, and hygiene does not lead to a generalized panic about infection to those age groups and category of the population that are not at such a high risk and where uh, uh, the goal of reaching popula population level immunity is not based only on waiting for a vaccine. And, of course, in such a perspective, is there room for other measures? Yes, we can redesign physical distancing and behavioral change measures if, whenever they are necessary, but not in the blanket authoritarian logic of the lockdown in ways that are more localized and adjusted to the realities of community and insist on behavioral change based on consent instead of coercion and avoiding the expansion of state surveillance. Uh, I mean, to, to give a very simplistic example, uh, th there is 
in, in countries such as Greece. There is this idea in order to induce behavioral change that people must wear masks in open spaces, you know, like because this helps them not to remember, forget, uh, uh, you know, to, to have the mask on in closed spaces when it's, of course, it's more necessary. But this idea of inducing behavioral change in such a, a way, whereas we can, you know, appeal to, you know, common sense in both the practical and the Gramscian way and say, people, you have to understand where wearing masks is necessary and please there do wear your mask. That, that's a different approach. And, I mean, the, all these points to how we can attempt to reorganize society in, on the base of solidarity or on all levels, from reorganizing workplaces, making sure that practices are safer, to attempting to reorganize education instead of shutting it down, which I, as I already mentioned, suspending education is a, is a class strategy, and it's the wrong kind of class strategy because we're very, we're very well aware that middle class and upper middle class and bourgeois uh, social strata can easily compensate for for uh, for closed schools, whereas working class children pay the price. Uh, and of course, of course, such a strategy does not cannot be limited there. We need drastic transfer of resources from the private to the public. Of course, we need nationalization of the entire health infrastructure, publicly funded and coordinated research. Instead of the logic of the antagonism between multinational, which is good for CEOs but not for populations. I mean. Uh, everyone is 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 uh, celebrating the Pfizer uh, vaccine. Uh, at the same time, there's not been enough, you know, polemic and criticism on the fact that it's the CEO of Pfizer made a giant, you know, uh, amount of profit by using his insider knowledge and selling stock the day after the announcement. And and everyone saying, okay, well, not bad since since we have the vaccine, but this this is the ethics of neoliberalism. Uh, so, so, so I think that in a certain way we need to combine both a coercive aspect, especially in regards to you know getting resources and transferring resources from the part of, of the private sector uh, in order to enhance the resilience of society, but also a kind of logic of initiatives from below instead of this kind of administrative logic that, that is inscribed within the lockdown. And in a certain way, this could be a logic of dual power. And, and this brings me to the question of, you know, war communism that Andreas talked about. I can understand the importance of this analogy, especially if we draw the analogy between the pandemic and the climate crisis, both in, in, in regards to the urgency of them, but also to the common causal processes with the emergence of new infectious pathogens being the result of the same capitalist growth paradigm that has also led to the climate catastrophe we're facing. Uh, and indeed, it's it's very legitimate to pose this, this, this point that if in the name of the pandemic, governments seem to ready, at least in rhetoric, to impose such drastic and in certain instances, even draconian measures, why not use this kind of draconian analogy to demand the same measures to deal with climate change or world poverty? And to a certain degree, uh, I, I do agree with that. This is an important uh, aspect, that there are other urgencies that are not being treated as urgencies, although they need the same kind of urgent measures. And I also agree with that. I'm, I'm fully in agreement that any anti-capitalist project will not necessarily begin as luxury communism 
and most possibly will also not end like one. I can understand the necessity for a certain, even one might say, communist austerity that would prioritize collective needs over individual consumerist obsessions. And I also agree that what we are discussing is changing life, producing a new life form in a certain way for humanity. And it is exactly my point with both climate change and the pandemic, that of a profound transformation of social relations, forms, and mentality. In the case of climate change, a post-capitalist social and economic order, which remains the basic prerequisite for really sustainable, socially produced material metabolism of contemporary humanity, requires a profound transformation of the social organization of the economy, of new forms of democratization of the workplace, or new forms of distribution beyond the fetishism of the market, and in a certain way, a new form of sociality, a new life form expressed in new axiological hierarchies in regards to what constitutes good life. This cannot be simply imposed. It requires increased participation and a generalized democratization of all aspects of social life. It also requires a new civilization, a new civility to go along. And I think the same goes for the new wave of pandemics. On the one hand, we, we indeed need to put a stop to a certain model of capitalist development that induces deforestation, disruption of natural habitats, and expansion of industrialized farming and poultry and meat production that enhance the emergence of new zoonotic diseases. This, of course, requires a profound reorganization of production, distribution, and consumption, and on the social relations of it, which is not just question of simply stopping some industries. We need to stop some industries. For example, yes, an industry like the mink industry, or perhaps large segments of the food industry have to be abolished, stopped. But at the same time, you need to reorganize food production using the collective experience and knowledge, for example, inscribed inscribed in traditions of non-industrialized farming or grazing. And on the other hand, The actual resilience of societies to the constant re-emergence of such new pathogens requires not just better health systems and services, of course, this is a very big priority, but also the kind of quality of life that more egalitarian societies offer with stronger ties of solidarity and at the same time that are more open and less repressive. Such societies would end up with significantly better health indicators and would fare much better uh, against a new pandemic, at the same time, they can deal better with all forms of disease. And this is something we know. We know that societies with the same level of development and the same la- level of health services available, the more equal societies tend to have better health indicators. Equality per se, in a certain way, uh, helps with health. So I think to do that, Such profound changes require the expansion of forms of collective experimentation and ingenuity, and they also require, as already mentioned, new axiological orientations and new hierarchies of values against consumerism, beyond the fetishism of value and commodity, and a new collective ethos of solidarity. And this is the essence of what can be described as a cultural revolution. That's my main point. Even if war communists can be a starting point, then you need a cultural revolution. And I might say, both in the Leninist and why not Chinese version, and and a cultural revolution cannot be initiated in a coercive manner. It needs more freedom, more expansion of of the politicization and democratic uh, dynamic of the masses. And that's why I'm saying that the logic of war communist uh, 
uh, is not uh, enough. But I mean, some people might say, "Okay, but this is a pandemic. This is this is an an, an emergency. Do we have the luxury of, for example, self-organization against uh, against the pandemic?" I think I tried to show how the idea of self-organization and collective participation in exactly the attempt to adjust life to make it safer during a pandemic is necessary from the workplaces to education to really creating a network of social solidarity to care for the vulnerable and the and the susceptible. And it's exactly this idea that I tried to describe as a potential democratic biopolitics by means of a certain idiosyncratic or even unfaithful reading of Foucault, a reading that treats biopolitics as a more relational concept by reading it through the lens of later Foucault, the notion of collective care of ourselves and the notion of Parisia, courage of the truth, as an analogy for a certain democratization of knowledge. Uh, and I think this serves the same idea that indeed any politics of social transformation and emancipation is indeed a form of biopolitics, namely a politics of life, of both securing, transforming and liberating life, of creating new forms of collective livings, embracing all aspects of life from the material biological to the social. But it's a biopolitics antagonistic to both the authoritarian disciplinary biopower and also neoliberal uh, governmentality, uh, an attempt to avoid both the logic of the lockdown and a neoliberal cynicism that would treat large segments of the subaltern as surplus population. And this means exactly to the idea to how to struggle against the actual thanatopolitics or necropolitics of neoliberal capitalism that do not only have to do with exposure to infection. This is one aspect of how one might say capitalism kills, but also with the many ways that social inequality, precariousness, and socioeconomic stress increase the actual vulnerability of populations. And moreover, such an alternative would oppose the suspension of sociality that is inherent in the very notion of social distancing in favor of the emphasis on recreating conditions of sociality and care, uh, but also struggle and resistance within a constant agonistic renegotiation of vulnerability. One might say that this is a way to define revolutionary politics. It's, it's the refusal to simply accept or succumb to vulnerability, but try constantly to, by means of agonistic, struggle, uh, struggle to renegotiate it. And to remain within notions coming from the later work of Foucault and the result, research into the art of governing, I would even suggest that the question of a democratic biopolitics can be linked to the broader quest for a communist governmentality or the art of self-government of the subaltern, which is the open question of a transformative, participatory, experimental and democratic new practice of politics that would enable a potential subaltern self-government. Do we have reference points to start with this, even in regards to questions such as the ones we're discussing, namely questions of health? I think that there are examples. If you look examples of, 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 of such an approach, you can take the battle against HIV, where the fight against stigma, uh, the fight against the idea that this is a disease of high, uh, of high risk groups, the demand for education and safe sex practices, the funding of the development of therapeutic measures and access to public health services would not have been possible without the struggle of movements such as ACT-UPS. We can always point 
to the Black Panthers and their survival, painting revolution strategy, which focused on breakfast program, liberation schools, clothing programs, and free medical clinics, and even included a national testing program for sickle cell anemia, uh, a strategy that Frederick Jameson has used as an example of dual power, and Alberto Toscano has described as a potential uh, dual biopower. Uh, there are also other examples. I mean, you can all, Paul Richards writing on the fight against the 2014-2015 Ebola pandemic stressed the emergence of a people's science, a collective learning process that helped communities deal with a pandemic in a process where communities, and I quote from him, learned, uh, communities uh, learned to think like epidemiologists and epidemiologists to think like communities. And, and this is a, a very interesting way to describe what is necessary to think democratization of knowledge, but at the same time, how a more socially oriented, community oriented version of science, instead of, you know, groups of expert experts advising governments into everyday, even more authoritarian measures, because this is exactly the case of epidemiologists that are totally uh, incapable of thinking like communities. And or, or one might point to Alan Sears, who recently suggested the need from help from below that draws from the self-activity of vulnerable communities taking charge of their well-being through mobilization and sharing knowledge. So I think there are, we have starting points even in regards to health issues. And I think that they all this points to the idea that we can think democratic biopolitics not as a simple demand for public health intervention from the part of the state, which of course are necessary, but as constant processes of subaltern struggle and confrontation with the limits of contemporary neoliberal states' response to the pandemic. And I think this is this is more uh, this is the final closing point. Point. This is very important because so far the left has failed. That's to address this question and propose a radical alternative to the dominant uh, strategy. Uh, I'm not denying, of course, all the demands that have been made for better staffed and better equipped public health system for paid sick leave, increases in unemployment benefits, measures against mass layoffs. All these are urgently necessary. However, embracing the lockdown strategy or you know, accepting it as unavoidable, this is not radical left, in, in, at least in my take. I have no problem with coercive measures, sometimes they are necessary, but taking as granted such a strategy or limiting demands to more closures and lockdowns is not a left strategy. Take, take education and schools, for example. It is one thing to demand safer schools. This is important. It is one thing to demand that older teachers or those with underlying health problems are not put at risk. And it's another to actually demand remote learning, which has devastating results, especially to working class children. And at the same time, although we must make sure that there's no uh, you know, loss of employment or working class income, I mean, furloughs are not the royal road to socialism. This is not the idea of socialism. The idea is you know, reorganizing production, taking the means of production, not just have a protective you know, state that offers furloughs to, to anyone. So, so I think that's why I insist on, on the need to challenge the lockdown strategy, exactly because today the notion of the collective care of our, for ourselves acquires you know, a new agency because we need to struggle against the many ecologies of disease, exploitation, and oppression that the reproduction of, uh, of capital ex capitalist exploitation entails from climate change to the many versions of the contemporary housing, housing question to the pandemics. 
And I think it's it's also important to move you know, from the idea of a temporary suspension of some economic activity towards a permanent process of social social transformation. Because however counterintuitive it might sound, in the medium and long run, greater social equality, greater security and well-being, and um, as emancipated society can indeed save more lives than simply guarding public health systems, or to be more precise, can create the social context where increased investment to public health systems make a difference. Last point. We live in a period marked by fear. On the one hand, uh, fear is something that can help, you know, the apprehension of grave risk and thus the mobilization to deal with the causes of such risk. This is a positive aspect of fear. On the other hand, generalized and atomized fear can be a means to further disaggregate the subaltern classes and thus compensate for the current lack of a coherent capitalist hegemonic project. Some people have reminded that the last time we had a severe pandemic from a respiratory pathogen, which was not luckily the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, but more the 1968-69 flu pandemic, which was, of course, less severe than COVID-19, but it was severe, nevertheless, with one to four million deaths estimated uh, globally. Uh, This was a period of generalized revolt. Uh, And it's also interesting that even this year, I mean, the the moments that were inspired us were the moments where struggle managed to overcome fear. This was the case with Black Lives Matter, This was the case with the protests in Poland. This was the case with the mass anti-fascist rallies in Greece. And I do believe this is a way to answer fear, to resist it, not to succumb to it in order to strong against the policies and oppressive and exploitative social forms that put our lives and our futures at risk. In a certain sense, collective struggle instill the best safety procedure available to us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Panayotis. <clears throat> so I remind people that his uh, article in the latest issue of Historical Materialism, uh, Is Democratic Biopolitics Possible? Is uh, freedom, We've made freedom available until the 15th of December, uh, but that shouldn't be an excuse. It should rather be an incentive for you to subscribe to the journal. Um, and there is currently a 25% discount uh, on the subscription to the journal, which you really have no excuse not to take up. Okay, um, so uh, a bunch of questions have started coming in. Um, do either of you want to react immediately to what the other person said? Do you have immediate uh, comments? No? Okay. Um, let's uh, try and go through these in order then. Uh, from... Um, Sita, having trouble reading, uh, from Sita, the question is um, uh, presumably to uh, Andreas, that would work if the government is not corrupt. Many of the countries that have a heavy deforestation, like Cambodia, the government has closed their eyes, heavy corruption from the profit. Uh, from Samuel uh, Albert, uh, again, to Andreas, I think. Are you talking about war communism or war capitalism? Be reformed and saved. Uh, 
Um, also from uh, Samuel Albert, uh, how can capitalism to uh, act in a totally different way without revolution? Capitalism, imperialism, the greatest barrier to coping with this crisis in the interests of the billions on this planet. Uh, also from Samuel Albert, uh, a lot of comments on this. Uh, imperialist states safeguard strategic interests of the capitalist ruling classes of each country. How can basic change without revolution overcome this? Um, uh, so, um, uh, Hanagal asks to Andreas, uh, through what means or movements that exist today would you imagine the implementation of a some like system? Um, David, uh, Winnipeg uh, asks uh, Andreas, review of your book in the Brooklyn Rail recently, uh, counterposes movements in the South to the politics you're arguing is well, this argument. Uh, and Peter Drucker, uh, also to Andreas, says the overthrow of capitalism without shortages in Russia had serious consequences for the kind of post-capitalists with, with shortages in Russia had serious consequences for the kind of post-capitalist society they created. What can eco-socialists do to avoid such distortions now? So, uh, come back with a series of questions for Pan Artis, but uh, Andreas, do you want to start responding? Sure, I'll start. Um, I... There, there were uh, some moments there, Sebastian, when uh, when your voice trailed off, um, so I couldn't hear the entire questions, but I think I got the gist of most of them. I'll try. Uh, yeah, uh, on the first point about deforestation and corruption, sure, a lot of these states are uh, uh, corrupt to, to one degree or another. Um, the, the one case, the, the one success story that we have from this century in slowing down deforestation is from Brazil, where the first um, period of, of Lula saw uh, a very dramatic deceleration of deforestation, thanks to PT assuming power and cracking down on deforestation. That was, uh, I'm, I'm not a scholar of Brazil or Brazilian politics, but I, I, I guess that that was intrinsically tied to Lula's attempts, however half-hearted or, or reformist they were, to um, uh, clean up in some of the, 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 the mess of corruption in that country. Uh, obviously, uh, the end of that story wasn't that positive, but it, at least it shows that if you have, uh, um, I mean, if, if you have a government that is somehow based in working class politics, at least there is the potential to uh, um, limit the uh, uh, onslaught on forests from, from capital. Now, uh, there was the question, uh, am I talking about war capitalism or war communism? Well, first, uh, um, uh, <clears throat> um, 
first we should note that when when Lenin spoke about these things, there there was actually in I mean in his argument a sort of slide between war capitalism and war communism because much much of what he uh, argued was necessary to fight the emergencies, the shortages, the collapse of. Um, uh, of of uh, of war torn Russia was inspired by German war capitalism by what the state did in Germany and my I mean I, my my rhetorical uh, ploy in my book is, is is slightly similar that we can be I mean we can be inspired to some extent although I completely agree with everything that Panagiotis said about lockdown. And I really want to stress that. And, and I hope I have the chance to come back to that lately, uh, not the least because I'm sitting in Sweden, which has had a, a different policy. Uh, but I, I completely agree with everything uh, that Panagiotis said. But certain aspects of what states have done uh, demonstrate that it's actually possible to wield the kind of control that is that is necessary. And I think what uh, something like the Dutch state completely abolishing its mink industry it's it's just one tiny little case and what what Denmark is doing now although it's it's happening in a in a half hazard fashion and 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 not uh, necessarily in the best way but it shows that it is actually possible to take public control over certain very destructive industries and close them down which is exactly what we need now this is more in line with war communism than with war capitalism uh, and my discussion in the book uh, is developed in, in dialogue with the very frequently invoked um, analogy of wartime mobilization uh, with the, the U.S. during the Second World War serving as a potential model for what needs to be done to transition out of fossil fuels. And here the, the, the lesson is supposedly that just as the American government took control over the auto industry and other kinds of manufacturing and converted them completely to the one goal of defeating the Nazi enemy, we should do something similar with our industrial apparatuses to uh, combat global heating. And I, I buy that in that analogy uh, if, uh, if it is defined as such, but there are limits to that analogy. And most crucially, uh, war capitalism of the U.S. kind during the Second World War did not entail any confrontation with dominant class interests. Dominant classes were essentially on board, even though they were perhaps slightly inconvenienced for a period by state control. They were essentially on board with the war effort, which didn't threaten their position in society. And in fact, entrenched their power. I mean, the U.S. victory in the war uh, was a great blessing for dominant classes in the U.S. War communism had the opposite logic. Here, a catastrophe could only be uh, overcome by bringing down dominant classes. And that's more the situation we face now. So that's, that's why I think war communism is more uh, suitable, uh, an analogy, in that respect than, uh, than the Second World War or war capitalism generally. Uh, so there was a question about movements. Uh, yeah, of course. I, 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 I said earlier that I'm prepared to conduct self-criticism, uh, for, for the book that I put out. And one of the main gaps there is that there is no discussion really about movements and about the subject of this, this sort of change. The, the argument is more logical or, or, or uh, abstract or axiomatic uh, along the lines of any state that wants to deal with the drivers of Zoonotic spillover and global heating will have to take 
certain measures that crack down on these drivers. That's that's the the argument in the book. I'm not suggesting that this or that movement can do it. And that uh, that is obviously a, a gap and raises precisely this question. Uh, in my in my defense, I I should say that I have a, another book coming out that was mentioned by Sebastian called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is all about movements and all about uh, tactics for the climate movement. Uh, it's not necessarily a bridge between the two, but when this this reviewer in in, uh, in Brooklyn Rail that someone referred to um, asked about uh, this or that movement in in the global south. To some extent, I had the feeling that he wanted to read another book than the one that I wrote. I mean, I could have written a survey of, of movements in the global south. That's not the book that I that I wrote. If he would like to, to read it, he should ask someone to write that book or write it himself. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, but I, I didn't write a survey of, global move, of, of movements in the global south in, in that particular book. Uh, that is not to say, of course, that these movements are not important. In, in any in any sense. Now I, I mentioned briefly the case of Indonesia. I mean that's that's a country that has a combative labor movement that also has I mean at least a potential for an alliance with environmental uh, causes and movements uh, precisely in the battle of uh, against the government for its extreme liberalization of both the labor market and the rainforests in that country. And that that's one case where you can see. Working class movements in the global south, um, uh, objectively um, working against uh, erasing protection of forests. And uh, I mean, uh, comrades who know about Brazil and Latin America more than I do can show similar potentials there. Uh, so uh, uh, my my argument in the book is also, and this is developed at, at greater length in How to Blow Up a Pipeline, at least a little bit greater length. My argument is that states, uh, the states that we have today, advanced capitalist states, will uh, will not, with perhaps a few exceptions, this main case being one, move of their own accord, of their own volition, the prime mover of the kind of change we need will be precisely the kind of uh, collective initiatives and collective action that that the Panagiotis spoke about. Uh, now, uh, lastly, on uh, Peter Drucker's question, that, that's one where I uh, missed parts of it, but I think the question was, how do we make sure that uh, in an eco-socialist transition, we don't have the same problem with shortages that were so destructive for the the case of uh, of, of the Soviet uh, Soviet uh, regime was is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean the, uh, the the what was so catastrophic about shortages in uh, in the Soviet Union were of course that the early Bolshevik regime could not fight those shortages. Uh, with the help of resources in much more uh, materially developed and affluent uh, countries, I mean, if if the revolution had succeeded in other parts of Europe, it would have been much easier to to deal with these shortages and scarcities. So it was the the isolation of the of the Russian revolution in, in combination with the shortages that that really proved uh, uh, so so uh, harmful. I I have difficulty seeing that. Something like eco-socialism in one country uh, is even hypothetically possible 
Uh, I mean, a, a transition away from fossil fuels cannot, I mean, e- even that cannot really happen only in one country, unless maybe if, if it's a country of the scale of the US or China or, or perhaps the, the European Union. But uh, a transition this time really needs to involve more than just one country. Uh, it will need to include, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we'll have to include all, all of the, uh, the world, basically. And then you have... Uh, at least, presumably, you have greater, uh, better opportunities for dealing with these problems of, of scarcity and shortage than if you're in an isolated nation. So take the case of, of, of irreversible sea level rise and uh, uh, population displacement uh, ensuing from that. I mean, if you if you have if you have a, a lot of southern Iraq going underwater and you have Iraq as a nation on its own, moving towards something like eco-socialism, it would be very difficult to help those people. But if you have more countries, then uh, perhaps you can uh, relocate some of these people that will have to be resettled because the the sea is rising. And uh, I mean, I don't know, fill up parts of Sweden with those Iraqis or or something like that. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, uh, yeah, I'll stop there. Thanks, Andreas. There are other questions that have come in, but um, I have some questions for Panayotis now. Uh, so, uh, Penny Duggan is, uh, it's more of a comment than a question. Uh, domestic violence in the home is one of the major forms of violence in the lockdown. Um, so David, uh, Camfield from Winnipeg, um, it's a question for Panayotis. Generally agree with you, but aren't lockdowns a necessary but not sufficient tool in left strategy for vital suppression, um, and mitigation, especially given the high degree of working class decomposition. Janis uh, Delimpar, no, I'm not going to pronounce the name, a very, uh, very long uh, name, Janis, um, let's just say. Could you imagine a holistic radical left short term plan against the pandemic? Given that, for example, commodities, inequalities, uh, big elderly homes, etc., are a reality and can't go away in one night. I emphasize short term because uh, most of what I heard are long term essential differences between, I'd say, a socialist society and contemporary capitalism. Um, Geordie Cummings uh, from Toronto says... uh, in a political context where the agency that's required for the circumstances you describe is simply non-existent, labor activists have been at the forefront of arguing for social distancing and shutting down non-essential services and sectors. Is that not the logic of solidarity? Are those of us who successfully ensured that we would not put ourselves and our students at risk merely exercising a, par- a proverbial labor aristocratic privilege? Question mark. Uh, Janice also asks you, Panayotis, uh, and in my opinion, these more strategic visions sure need to be envisaged, but we also need a proposal for today for the crisis people are facing now, if you want, facing realizing the strategy into tactics. Um, Sita says, yes, we need the world community to participate in reducing buying uh, those logs, uh, tree trunks and so on would, uh, so can help reduce the poor countries, slow down the deforestation and make all countries accountable for their actions. 
Peter Drucker says, Panayotis, do you have a transitional tra- strategy to lead from working class decomposition today to the society-wide structures of solidarity needed for your anti-pandemic program? Um, Pippi Rossi says, I question this uh, idea of holding other countries accountable. You guys know about globalized predatory capitalism through the World Bank and IMF, right? Leftist activists, environmentalists, indigenous people in these countries are very specifically not being supported by the capitalist imperialist policies being imposed. Um, Okay, Uh, somebody misses Mike Davis. Well, we all miss Mike Davis. Panotis, do you want to respond to those? And then I have some more for Andreas. Okay, thanks. These are really, really good questions. Uh, Okay, yes. I mean, mean, we are are now in uh, November. We're not in March. I can understand, you know, opting uh, for uh, lockdowns under uh, as a temporary measure to gain some time, uh, as opposed to the total failure of epidemiological surveillance, because this is an aspect of public health that it's, it has always been important, and we and we and we surely failed in most advanced capitalist uh, societies, because epidemiological surveillance would have ensured that perhaps you could uh, even suppress at the very start starting points, which was the famous call for uh, aggressive testing, tracing, and isolating, whereas in Europe we started imposing measures after there was significant dispersion within the community. But I think that uh, the, the, the time that whatever time was gained in spring was not very well, uh, very well spent. I mean... Uh, because yes, if you look at short-term solutions, you could try and buy some time, uh, reorganize the health system, which means not only more ICUs, it also means more simple beds in hospital, it also means primary care. For, for, a, for a long period, care for COVID uh, infections was either you stayed at home or on the brink of death, you were brought to a hospital, whereas a much more layered approach with primary care Access to hospital, not necessarily ICU, and finally enough ICUs can indeed reduce mortality for the serious cases that are uh, available. Uh, although from early on, from the very first reports from Wuhan, we knew that it was age-specific. There was it was there was the possibility to reorganize elderly homes, impose basic. Uh, you know, safety protocols there, and gradually try to reorganize fostering for the elderly, uh, finding other places with better conditions for their hospitality, in certain cases, even if if it it was possible for them to return to a multi-generational household where they could sort of, you know, be better protected. There were things that were not even discussed in in that period. There was a kind of lack of any understanding. We even started seeing that in the statistics that started emerging. And for example, we know by now know that the first wave of the pandemic in Western Europe and large segments of of the US, especially the East Coast, New York and New Jersey, to take an example, large part of the mortality is nursing home, care facilities, uh, tragedy. The same goes for Sweden. If you look at the statistics in Sweden, the percentage of people being in, in care facilities or in or in uh, help at home uh, program, home assistance programs, and all these 
there was no no attempt to redesign them, no attempt to make them safer. So there were short-term measures to have reduced health uh, impact. Moreover, uh, there is the question, uh, which is really, really interesting. What is the, the demand from the part of the labor movement? Uh, suspend non-essential activity or try to reorganize it? I think, I think th- there is an aspect that sometimes misses this discussion. The extent of, of work that it is necessary to keep going on, even during a full-scale lockdown, is immense. If you look, what it mean? What, what is the extent of uh, supply chains? You know, so that people can go to the supermarket and all other essential store stores and buy what they need to keep energy going, to keep communications going, like like in like the internet, uh, to keep uh, mass transport uh, going, uh, to keep uh, basic infrastructure still uh, you know functioning. That's a very big part of, of, of the labor force. And to a large extent of, of it, these are people that are vulnerable and susceptible. So I suggest, yes, in some certain instances, you can opt for the idea of suspending if it's not essential. And But in other cases, it would have been much better, you know, to demand not only, uh, you know, better safety protocols, but even, you know, a generational change. I mean, if we could imagine another form, if we could imagine a form of solidarity, we could take people off frontline works if their their age and health profile makes them susceptible, and even you know, temporarily replacing with people that run le- run less risk in terms of their age and health profile, and of course providing them with all the safety uh, measures uh, available. Because indeed, in the in the case of the lockdown, there is a class divide between people that can stay at home and people that cannot stay at home because. They, they represent. So this is a form of solidarity for me. Is this a form of solidarity if we could get younger people to do with safety measures, with masks, with everything, the job of the 55 or 65 year old, you know, really friendly and, and a person that I meet every time I go to my supermarket. I would really love to see her at home, you know, with paid uh, leave instead of being exposed. Because this is a position that's exposed, I see a younger person there. Okay, that, that's that's perhaps an idea of solidarity, perhaps perhaps na- na- naive. And the same goes for education. I mean, for example, in Greece, the demand here from the part of the educational unions, now that they have shut down all schools, is not is is to open schools. It's to open schools with safety measures, 15 children maximum per per classroom. Make sure that they are ventilated well, masks everybody. And the two months where the school system worked, it, it basically things were not so tragically at Greek schools. This, 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 for example, for me is an idea. You must find ways to keep education going because if if you don't keep education going, then you have a, uh, you have you end up with a class gap in terms of knowledge and skill. And these are immediate in a certain way measures. It was possible for governments all over the world to hire extra teachers. For example, hire them in the summer so that their September come, they were in their places so that they could have safer schools or safer universities. It was possible to hire extra medical staff and nursing staff to have better primary care, simple care, and intense care facilities available so that so that you don't, for example, in the Greek case, nothing was done. 
And the, and the moment we reached a relatively low number in comparison to other countries of persons in ICU care, currently there are about 330, I think, I don't remember the latest figure, it's not a giant figure, everybody said we are reaching the limit of the system. You could have more ICU beds and more hospital beds. So there were things that could be done along with ways to reorganize uh, forms of living, uh, working, so that you could avoid the destructive aspects of, of the of the lockdown. And I think that the left had the time, not necessarily at the immediate point of when the pandemic started, but as we started to know more about the pandemic, and we have this knowledge of the characteristics of the pandemic from April, from May. So we had time to organize, indeed, immediate transition demands, uh, so that we at least avoid, for example, a destructive case of a lockdown and also protect better the vulnerable, the susceptible, the elderly, working class persons in danger. And of course, use this opportunity to reorganize, of course, to, to a better future. I, 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 otherwise, we fall into the trap of treating that with the logic that the lockdown is, uh, you know, unavoidable. Right? Because in a certain way, this is a dead end uh, logic. So I, I'm not sure. And yes, so I think I tried to, to answer these uh, questions. And I understand that there is a difference between immediate measures and long term strategies, but I think there was room for movements, and there is still room for movements to demand, to organize uh, today, even during this lockdowns. I mentioned schools and the demands from uh, school unions, uh, and, and one could think also of other uh, such demands. And of course, the problems that mentioned in the initial comments on domestic violence and really, really, really all forms of such problems, domestic violence, mental health, despair, are on the rise, especially during the second lockdown. I mean, the first lockdown was kind of heroic for most persons. People said, okay, let's do it. There was this sense of a collective battle. And it was good. There were positive moments. And, and indeed, uh, there were moments where people were, you know, lockdowning and thinking this is a form of solidarity. I do accept that. Uh, it was good. Now you don't have the same feeling. You have a certain feeling of, of despair. Uh, and unless the left comes in and offers particular demands and social movements, then you know, we, we all know the danger. We, we know the danger of the far right. The far right has played the anti-lockdown, anti-virus, you know, conspiracy kind of theory card. Uh, even though most of the protests are not far right, some of the protests are not far right protests. The protests in Italy are not far right, although the far right tries to, you know, take advantage of them. So yeah, it, it is important for the left to understand what's going on, understand the feeling of despair, understand protests, and start challenging the dominant. Discourse, opening up small breaks, for example, this my, in three days, on November, it is November 17. November 17 is, you know, the, the day we commemorate the National Polytechnic Uprising in Greece. It's a very important thing. It's not a national holiday, but it's an each year there are demonstrations in all over the countries accepted as, as something equal to, to a, national, a national celebration. Although it's a, the, 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 the National Polytechnic Uprising was uh, against the dictatorship, was really radical. And the government has said that it's going to forbid all demonstrations and we're going to give this big battle. I mean, this is an important battle. You must open breaks. 
No demonstrating can be done even within a lockdown, and we need to open such breaks instead of fully succumbing to the logic, to the disciplinary aspect of the logic. And then you can find other things to try to open gaps, create, have demands, and basically, you know, have even small victories so that people can see that things can indeed change even within a difficult condition. Okay, thank you, Panayotis. Um, I'm reliably informed that Samuel Albert, whose questions or interventions I read earlier, is um, uh, um, an acolyte of the uh, Barbavakianite Revolutionary Communist Party, so you can ignore anything that he says, although I would tell people that um, apparently the Bobovakian's new synthesis, uh, if you directly inject it into your veins, is even more effective than bleach uh, against COVID-19. So that's that's always good to know. Um, okay, so a um, question from John McDonald uh, for uh, Andreas. Um, just trying to... Trying to uh, so um, Andreas talks about I can't get access to the okay yeah um, I'm curious to hear Andreas talk about what kinds of demands for existing struggles are suggested by his argument that we're facing a best case scenario of decades worth of consequences of the ecological crises already created by capital. The looming reality of this situation cast in the light of the left's weakness has a tendency to push movements towards moralism and adventurism, on the one hand, extinction rebellion, blockading public transit, for example, or transport, uh, and desperate and ineffectual supplication on the other, regulate the polluters so that they're less bad, green capitalism. What kind of immediate struggles would point in the direction of the sort of shifts uh, that would be necessary? Um, and um, uh, Faisal ha Hamada uh, has a question for both speakers. Um, in both your presentations, the underlying issue to be dealt with seems to be scarcity, imagined widely. How much of this scarcity is naturally occurring and how much is produced? For example, if testing was more widely available and easier, lockdowns would not be nearly as necessary. Let's see if uh, I'm missing anything. Ah, um, Andreas from Poets Thuggery. Uh, Andreas, I think that you said we need to take money from the capitalist class. Where would you see that happening? And would you agree that cancelling the debt of the global south would be one way? I think I haven't missed anything. Uh, Andres. Right. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll try to uh, integrate my answer to John's question with some, some comments on what Panagiotis has been saying. Um, um, and 
I will be a little bit navel gazing here uh, by once again returning to the case of the German climate movement, which is the one that I've uh, related to mostly in, in recent years and the one that I uh, write perhaps mostly about in how to blow up a pipeline. And uh, the, the German movement um, uh, was, I mean, it scored a, a tiny bit of victory in 2019 when it, after a, a, a couple of years of intense mobilizations around the lignite mines in Germany, forced the state to deal with the issue and um, uh, put together a commission uh, that uh, had the task of deciding on what year this industry will come to an end. So that was the, the mission of the commission. Eventually, because of uh, a disadvantageous balance of forces, um, partly due to the fact that the, the metal workers union and other unions supported um, a long life for the coal industry, the, the date that was set was 2038. So the lignite industry will run for another two decades, which is absolutely unacceptable. It's it's totally disastrous. It should have been ended decades ago. And therefore, the work of the, the movement continues. But uh, this is at least a case of a movement mobilizing, uh, if, you know, forcefully enough to force the state to realize that we have to end this industry at a certain date. Obviously, the date should be, uh, it should be now. It should be much closer to the present than, than 18 years into the future. Uh, but I think that, uh, well, from my perspective, and this is, this is admittedly, admittedly Eurocentric and even Northern Eurocentric or, or Germanocentric, uh, and the Gelände and the German climate movement uh, did develop a formula for, um, for uh, direct action around coal mines that made it impossible to ignore the issue. And uh, it's not, from my point of view and from the point of view of the movement, inconceivable that this kind of formula could reach another scale. That I mean, that we could have these kind of actions on another order of magnitude and that the popular pressure would therefore be much stronger and the balance of forces would shift and the date would be pushed uh, much closer to, to this present day. So, uh, I mean, this is just one sketch towards actually existing uh, movement building that could drive the sort of, of, uh, uh, of change that is needed. And we saw quite a lot of that in 2019, which was the best year for the climate movement ever. And for those of us who've been part of the movement for, for quite a long time, it was, it was very rewarding, gratifying and inspiring to see finally the movement become a mass phenomenon, at least in, in certain parts of the world. And numerically, it was by far the largest, precisely in Germany. So finally, after all those years, after all those warnings, after all those extreme weather events, finally we had actually millions of people out on the streets. We had the strike movement, uh, and we had, uh, uh, we had the strike movement in Germany eventually uh, uh, engaging parts of the union movement, which was probably one reason why why the German uh, climate movement was so much bigger than anywhere else, that you actually had a union component in the strikes, although not from the metal workers union, which opposed it. Uh, <clears throat> but there were, I mean, there, there were there were uh, uh, there were signs of a uh, of a kind of union component, working class component to to the climate uh, struggle in Germany. 
And uh, we had Extinction Rebellion with, with all our critiques of it, and I completely share uh, uh, your, your your brief denunciation of it there, uh, John. Uh, and uh, how to blow up a pipeline is largely a critique precisely of XR. But that was part of the wave of climate mobilization in 2019. And then the pandemic happened. And this movement just totally abolished itself and uh, agreed with the lockdown to the extent that, you know, Greta Thunberg said, now it's all about the coronavirus. We're not going to do any strikes anymore. We're going to sit at home with our screens and perhaps have some digital strikes. And it's so incredibly frustrating that the climate movement has just uh, accepted to go out of business and lost all the momentum that was built up in 2019. And the, the tiny uh, attempts to revive it uh, towards, you know, in the beginning of this autumn with a, a, a strike day, a little bit of XR actions have come nowhere near regaining the momentum of last year. And here I completely agree with Panagiotis that it's, it was absolutely disastrous for, for the left and for the climate movement in particular to just accept the lockdown as a fact and abide by it and abolish itself. And uh, it's particularly frustrating because if there is one movement that can say the following, you, okay, so you don't like lockdowns, you don't, you're, you're grieving the loss of your mother, or you're, you're scared of contracting the virus yourself, so you're worried about this pandemic, then that means you don't want this to happen again. Okay, then come and join us in the street to demand public control of the supply chains that cause deforestation. And come and join us uh, in, in calling for an end to the fossil fuel combustion that would also cause more zoonotic spillover events. I don't know who else can make this argument as a movement than, than the environmental movement. So we should have been out on the streets this year and articulated that. And uh, I, 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 I also have to say that I completely agree with the, the argument that it's extremely unfortunate that it's the right and more particularly the far right, especially in Germany, that has monopolized frustration with the lockdown. And, you know, in, in Germany, the situation is the, the reverse in Sweden, because here the left has been in favor of, of, uh, of not having any lockdown, and the right has been, the far right has been calling for it. But in Germany, it's been exactly the other way around. And the left has appeared as almost reveling in this gloriously sacrificial condition of the lockdown, at least in the initial stage, which later on it becomes absolutely disastrous, because people are fed up with it for, for, uh, for uh, completely understandable reasons. The left and the climate movement are the only ones that can make the argument that if you don't want this to become a chronic, a permanent condition, you have to go for the drivers of these uh, these disasters. Uh, and uh, are these scarcities produced or natural? Well, they are completely produced. They're completely produced. Scarcities of, of ground to stand on, scarcities of biophysical resources caused by, caused by global heating or the scarcities that come, come with the pandemic are... Produced through and through. Uh, on the question of debt cancellation, yes, of course, I'm all in favor of canceling uh, um, uh, the debt, uh, debt of the global south as a means of redistribution. I'm also for canceling or repaying the climate debt that is uh, of, of uh, absolutely enormous quantity. And I think that one way of doing that is to, uh, uh, to accept or to, to institute rights for uh, migrants moving from 
homes that are no longer habitable because of global heating. So uh, rights for free movement, I mean, I'm I'm obviously for free movement for all migrants, and I'm for opening all borders, but the the least you can do to repay the the climate debt to the global south is to allow for free movement for uh, what has been called climate refugees. Thanks. Um, Panayotis, uh, do you want to react? There was also um, a question from Janice who says to you, uh, in the same lines, any ideas for a movement's collective ways for self-organization, self-protection and solidarity to vulnerable, to the vulnerable, self-survival in general in the current situation? Yes, well, well, this is this is an important issue, and uh, I mean, uh, at least I mean, I, I think, for example, that we would need something that than the rather big movement of solidarity practices that emerged in Greece during the period of the big austerity and the big social crisis, and in certain instances we might also need this. Uh, because, for example, in, in countries like Greece, with not so much tradition of social protection, especially for, for the more marginalized uh, segments of society, there was, for example, a period when most homeless people in Athens were dependent on grassroots initiatives because official structures were also suspended because of, of the lockdown. That, that was happening in March, April and May here in Athens. And if you want to make life more easily, this, this requires going back into this idea of community organizing. For example, if you don't want for exa- uh, the elderly to go to wait in supermarket lines, okay, to, to, you know, to buy what they need if they are staying uh, alone. And of course, most of them are not digital, digitally savvy so that they can order online. So you need to have a kind of community knowledge for who are the persons that need. You want me to go and do the grocery shopping for you. And there have been even such gestures here in, in Greece and I suppose in other countries. There are, there are I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning such you know, miniature kind of initiatives, but I think they point to a general idea. There is strong room to find ways to support if you get, and, and especially movements that are locally based, they can find ways to help you know, organize, make life better, and of course at the same time have demands. Uh, in, in, in regards to, to governments, because especially, uh, I mean, the, the second lockdown, if it goes until March, then we're going also talking about major, you know, economic depression, not just, a, you know, a, a temporarily, you know, uh, decrease as it was this year. This would also have grave social consequences, and this would also have uh, lots of movements uh, uh, to do. Uh, and the same goes, you know, for people how to rethink if they if they still have to work, how they can organize things. And as I mentioned, there are big battles like reopening schools in safe ways. So there is there is room for for movements. And of course, I mean, I haven't I I, I fully understand, uh, you know, trade unions asking for suspension or you know saying unless we're we're sure that things are safe we cannot go back to work i fully understand that that, that surely this is my answer to jody this is not labor aristocracy (laughs) Uh, but what i what i was suggesting is that take if we take into consideration the knowledge we have how can we you know try and keep as much of social life 
keep going on because the, 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 the trait of the suspension of social life, of education, of the economy, in the end, it is reactionary, it is authoritarian. And this is the difference between the aggressive idea of war communism that, you know, Andreas has suggested, to which I fully subscribe. Dual power needs, you know, a permanent dual power needs both, you know, a kind of centralized, coercive <laughs> worker state kind of approach plus movements from below. This is my idea, to be sure. So, and, and you need the kind of centralized, coercive approach to channel resources, to, to, to make possible profound, to make possible profound change, change with which itself requires the kind of experimentation and collective organization, even in a long way, that requires the kind of initiatives and, and all from, from below. This is my idea to be... So even though... So I think uh, th this is this is uh, this is a way to think of it, but not just demanding uh, suspension of furloughs and protection. They are necessary. They are necessary. You do not want to pay the working class to pay the crisis now of the lockdowns, but they not necessarily represent socialism. Socialism is not just about suspending social life in a certain way and making sure that everybody has a fair wage, even though socialism will necessarily mean a fair wage. It also means transforming life, finding it ways to make it better, safer, continue it. And, and there, are, there are things there to be done in education, in workplaces, and in, in health. For example, we, 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 the pandemic in, in regards to question of health had brought forward all, all the aspects of social determinants of health. You know, it is as if everything that has been written from a critical Marxist perspective on the relationship between capitalist inequality, oppression and exploitation in regards to health suddenly and in a more tragically way materializes in the health and death, unfortunately, statistics of COVID-19. You see it all there. You see the social determinants of health. Uh, in a very clear way. You see it in the underlying health conditions. You see it in mortality and morbidity rates. And yet, for example, from the part of the left, I haven't seen enough demands that go beyond more ICU beds. We need more ICU beds. We need many more ICU beds. That's, that's for sure. That's the only way to cater for the peak of the pandemic and for other health emergencies and potential new pandemics that we're going to have. But for example, a radically left or socialist or communist approach to health is how we make sure that people do not need so many ICU beds, how we organize primary care, and even more, how we make the use of health services less necessary, how we, how we have healthier people. And this is not just, you know, being having access to doctors. It also means for basic things like good nutrition, which is not available globally. In contrast, the statistics of undernourishment are tragically still, tragically, despite the so-called war on poverty to all the problems associated with socioeconomic stress, inequality, lifestyle problems that, that in, a, in a very unequal, tragically unequal way, you know, hurt the most, the, the law, the subaltern. And this was evident even in, in the statistics of the. So I'm, so I'm suggesting there, there's, there's room here to actually to do politics, to suggest that there is an alternative to capitalism. That's why that's why I'm, I'm perhaps uh, perhaps I'm exaggerating sometimes in the polemic against the lockdowns because if you stick to the lockdown mainly demanding a more socially humane 
aspect of the dominant strategy, you miss the opportunity to open up all the other aspects of radical demands and social transformation and, and make exactly the kind of argument that, for example, uh, Andreas made in regards to climate change. If you don't like the situation, this is the time to, to join the climate movement. And if you don't want to live in a society that at the same time makes your life precariousness, less fulfilling, and in, ma in many ways more dangerous, then you need to, you know, uh, be part of the movement and demand profound social change. And profound social change means much more than simply suspending. It means transforming. That's my basic point. Thanks, you, Panayotis. Uh, David Canfield says, left response to lockdown must stress the need for social support during the lockdown and creation of mass rapid testing, tracing, and isolation to make possible a reopening without further lockdowns. Andres, if, if I may, Sebastian, if I may, of, this is, of course, this is, this is, this is necessary, of course. No one denies the tracing. Uh, testing, you know, and this is a, the normal aspect, and it was tragically how much uh, that uh, initially they were not even been able to, you know, transfer resources to make this uh, possible, which in certain instances, especially at the beginning, would have been another strategy before the lockdown. And of course, we, need, we still need it today, and this is the uh, this is the idea. I'm just suggesting that apart from that, there are also other aspects where you can indeed uh, struggle. And, and of course, this, uh, this points to the question, by the way, of scarcity. There are aspects of scarcity that are natural, and, and Andreas has, has written a lot on that, and we must accept them. But at the same time, if we have a socially oriented and collective emphasis on collective ingenuity, we can indeed, you know, find ways to, you know, to produce things, practices, measures, uh, whatever we need uh, in order to make life uh, better. So this, there's always a dialectic in this. Thank you. <laughs> Andreas, I'm going to give you uh, a little bit of time to sum up because uh, you've also received some additional questions. Peter Drucker says, follow-up question, uh, could the deepening climbing cri climate crisis create worse challenges, worse, worse scarcity, sorry. Could the deepening climate crisis create worse scarcity even in rich countries and pose challenges for global solidarity even in a transnational eco-socialist transition. Uh, Felipe Mesco says, uh, what about the Cuban special period of the 1990s? In your book, you mentioned Cuba's healthcare, but not too much on this recent period of scarcity. Is it because it didn't entail a challenge to the ruling classes in Cuba at that time? And uh, Penny Duggan says, what about the attempts to mobilize around COP26? And then obviously you can add anything else you want to before we sum up, before we uh, bring this to a close. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, can, can the escalating climate crisis create worse scarcities in rich countries that sort of disable uh, them from, from, from helping uh, the global south? Well, evidently, yes. There, there is no, I mean, if global heating goes unaddressed, there's no and to the scarcities that will be encountered, even in the global north, uh, at one point or another. But uh, in, the, in the coming decades, I think there will remain a, a, a quite 
marked contrast between the capacity of the affluent global north. Of course, this is differentiated in terms of class, but let's say the capacity of, of rich people in the global north to withstand the stress uh, that comes with, uh, with with extreme weather events and, and, and various sorts of climate impacts and the capacity of poor people in the global south to to adapt. <clears throat> and uh, uh, that I mean, that contrast will remain with us for the foreseeable future. Uh, so we have, I mean, sea level rise is a problem in in uh, in parts of Europe as well, in in parts of Italy, in in, in the Netherlands, even in Sweden. Uh, but uh, uh, all indications are that uh, on this latitude, there is a greater capacity to 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 cope with this than, let's say, in southern Iraq or in Bangladesh. Uh, and I think this also entails uh, a duty. A political and ethical duty for the global north to to help out in the global south, uh, and th this, of course, uh, uh, this points to the whole discussion of of compensating for loss and damage that has become a big part in in climate politics and will become a, a bigger part in the in the years ahead. Uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, I I I think that even though. The climate catastrophe will have very serious consequences in the global north. The real problem will be political. How do you make affluent countries and and the the, the dominant classes in affluent countries? How do you how do you make them accept the duty to share their wealth in uh, in a moment of catastrophe? Because there's nothing to suggest that that this will happen uh, spontaneously. To the contrary, what's more likely is, the, is that the, the rich uh, lock themselves up in bunkers, literal and meta metaphorical, and that you have uh, the, the armed lifeboat uh, politics that Christian Parenti talks about in, in Tropic of Chaos, where you have rich countries closing their borders and, uh, you know, shutting themselves up <laughs> rather than this is this is what's politically the most likely scenario. Uh, so I think the the challenge in in creating uh, a global global solidarity and uh, uh, eco socialism not in one nation but but across the world would be to to break that resistance from the dominant classes to uh, to allow for meaningful solidarity. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's that's I mean that's that's just an attempt. Uh, to answer. Now, uh, with a special period in Cuba, I know very little about it, so I I, I, I shouldn't comment on it. But let me say, I, I should perhaps backtrack a little bit and say that there's, of course, a danger, or <laughs> we shouldn't in any way idealize life in shortages and scarcities. Uh, and and the, I, I assume that the Cuban special period was a time of material difficulties and uh, obviously, the climate movement has stressed for a long time how our lives could actually be improved, and this ties in neatly with what Panagiotis has been saying all along, our lives could actually be improved with a transition. You can have, uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, there are so many ways in which, uh, in which the quality of life can become better uh, if we move away from fossil fuels. Uh, and and uh, I mean, uh, people working on the Green New Deal and all of these things have uh, have uh, shown this in detail. And this this is everything everything from shortening working day to 
to uh, more convivial modes of living and all of these things. Uh, so I, I, I mean, in that's perhaps that's something that we should put more stress on in our uh, political uh, argumentation than than scarcity as such because of, co- of course we sh- we should try to avoid those it's just that if we are realistic it's it's quite and we we should prepare for having to be realistic uh, what what we're facing is is not extreme supply in all areas of life but uh, but uh, unfortunately reduced aggregate supplies of, of of critical goods in a rapidly warming world the the sooner we end global heating or or rather fossil fuel combustion the less scarcities there will be but there there's already so much damage done to the system that uh, that we will have to cope with some uh, serious problems i'm afraid the activism around cop 26 i have to confess that i'm not fully up to date with uh, with that campaign but i i support it uh, fully let, let me just say once again on on germany so uh, i i was in berlin i've been going back and forth between berlin and, and malmö this year and uh, and and uh, very much enjoyed not having to live in lockdown in sweden uh, vis-a-vis having to live under lockdown in, in germany uh, and the german climate movement has made some efforts to, to revive its activities uh, recently but uh, it's also extremely despairing because even though we've built up some some uh, some mass and some force in Germany this year the german uh, the german the germans are are, are uh, uh, opening a new airport in berlin they opened a new coal-fired power plant this summer, and they're extending the autobahn and cutting down an old-growth forest to do that. And this in the in the country that has the most emissions in all Europe, and the the, the strongest movement. And that really tells you that what the movement has done so far is not enough. We need to escalate and take the climate struggle to the next level. And I I do outline some thoughts in that respect in how to blow up a pipeline. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you to both uh, speakers for this session. Uh, I wanted to point out that um, we're going to continue this debate in historical materialism in various forms. So uh, there's Panayotis' piece in the latest issue that I mentioned before. In the following issue, issue 28.4, which will be out in um, December, we have a piece by Alberto Toscano on the question of the state and the pandemic. Um, I believe Gareth Dale is also going to be writing a piece um, in response to Panayotis, which we will publish on the Historical Materialism website, and uh, we encourage others to uh, engage uh, and propose engagements in a constructive and comradely way um, for uh, over this issue. Um, I want to take the... Uh, opportunity again to encourage you to subscribe to the journal and take advantage of the uh, 50% discount for books in the book series available from uh, Haymarket Books. I also want to tell people that, you know, this conference has an online conference is obviously less expensive to organize than a conference in, uh, you know, uh, face-to-face, but it does incur costs. And if you haven't made a donation, uh, for the running costs of the conference, I would encourage you to make a donation, however small, uh, so that we can uh, overcome our uh, overcome our costs. Um, tomorrow, the conference continues. Uh, we have uh, three sessions. 
so at 10.30 GMT, there's a session on historicizing law and capitalism, new directions, um, with a number of different speakers. Uh, at 1300 hours GMT, we have a session on 21st century socialism. And uh, the final session at 1600 hours uh, GMT is Marxism and identity politics, a roundtable um, discussion. So those are all three sessions uh, are going to be having tomorrow. And of course, uh, like all these sessions, uh, you'll be able to watch them and listen to them on the YouTube channel, uh, the Haymarket YouTube channel. Uh, and you can also uh, subscribe to our email list, historical materialism email list, uh, if you want to be kept up to date of our activities and other activities uh, by sending an email to uh, historicalmaterialism at soas.ac.uk. Lots of people saying on the YouTube thing that they miss Mike Davis. Uh, we also miss Mike Davis, and we hope that he recovers and that he will be able to participate in another discussion at some point with us on this issue. So thanks again to Andreas. Thanks again to Panayotis. Thanks to all the participants and the people who pose questions. And um, onward and upward. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.